We're going to look today at the message that um, Jesus brings to the church in Smyrna. So we looked at Ephesus, uh, the first one last time, a few weeks ago. Now from verse 8, let's read together. So the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we're in this uh, series in, in Revelation where we are now looking at the the different messages that Jesus from heaven is prophetically sharing to um, seven churches uh, in Asia Minor uh, in the the first century. We looked at the one in in Ephesus last time, and we arrive now at Smyrna. Uh, What we see about those seven churches, uh, kind of standing back and and getting an overview of all seven, is most of them are a mixed bag. Uh, Most of them will have strengths, but also uh, weaknesses. Uh, Some of them, or perhaps just one of them later on we'll find out, only has weaknesses, and that's quite a a bleak scenario. Um, Ephesus themselves, they're they're praised, they're said, I know your deeds in verse 2 and your hard work and perseverance and so on, Uh, but then it says in verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you've forsaken your first love. We'll go on another time to look at Pergamum, they get a warning as well. They're told, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Thyatira, they're told, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Sardis, they're told, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. And Laodicea is told, I know your deeds, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So, seven churches, five of them uh, get a warning and Jesus knows intimately what's going on with each and every church, and he knows what, therefore, uh, each church needs to hear. And we saw there's a, there's a kind of pattern that follows through. Jesus reveals something about himself. This church, every church, every person on the planet needs to see Jesus, needs a revelation of Jesus. Well, that's why we've got this book, a heavenly revelation of who Jesus is, what he's like, and what he says, and what will be um, at the end of time. And, uh, and so then it follows through. We, we see Jesus. Jesus brings a well done to most churches. He brings a warning uh, to most churches. And then at the end, he wraps it all up with a wonderful promise. What we see when we get to Smyrna, this is one of two churches only in this book that gets no warning. They get no rebuke. You know, we're looking at the church in Ephesus, and they'd started just to get off track. They'd started to drift, and so kind of problems had emerged uh, in the life of the church, um, even though there were many strengths as well. But they, they'd got off track, and Jesus wants to get their attention um, and, and uh, address that, those issues that had gone wrong. The church in Smyrna, they haven't gone off track. 
There's therefore no need to kind of correct them, to bring them back in line because they've drifted off, they've got into false teaching or whatever. This is a good church. And we might think, yeah, well, there's no perfect church, is there? Today, there's no, there's no perfect church. We understand that. Uh, but there are good ones. Most of us uh, will be a mixed bag with strong points and things that need correcting. Here's a church that gets no, um, no warning, no rebuke. Um, and so Jesus comes with a well done, but with no warning. He comes to bring comfort, um, but with no criticism, no correction. This is a church that needed comfort. Jesus knows his people. He is perfectly aware. We've seen earlier on how he's walking amongst the lampstands, this the kind of symbol for these different churches. He's walking amongst them. He knows intimately what's going on. He knows he needs to go over to this one and kind of trim the wick and top the oil back up and, and kind of get them refreshed and get them back on track and sort them out, basically. But this church, this church is in need of, 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 of comfort and encouragement. And it's in need of that because it is a church under pressure. It's a church, as we're going to see as we go through, that is experiencing pressure, tribulation, trial, hardship. Impressive, then they'd not drifted off track. They kept going in the right direction. For us, at different times and different ways, we can be living life and very aware of pressure. I suppose we've got to be careful what we mean by this because sometimes, you know, in my life, there'll be, there'll be seasons, that's what we like to call them in Christian circles, seasons, seasons of life. And that was kind of a, a, week, a, a bleak winter season. Um, we can look back in life, and, and I can see in my own life, times of, times of pressure, times that have been hard, times that have been tough. Um, uh, maybe in the, in the junior league, perhaps, of suffering so not we're not talking major but where suffering and hardship has been involved now sometimes when I look back at those events I can see yeah that was tough that was hard but if I'm perfectly honest I I brought that upon myself (laughs) in some way Um, now this isn't obviously always the case but I can think of for myself certain episodes where where I've been ill and actually if I'm perfectly honest there have been times when I've been unwell because I've been reckless in my lifestyle. Two people, you, you turn up on Sunday today, you have a chat with your friend afterwards, and you're both absolutely shattered. You're really tired, and uh, it, it, that is hard, that is tough. For one person, they're tired um, because their child was taken ill in the night, woke up, they, as the responsible parent, um, kind of check them out. See, this is, this is not just a, a kind of uh, a little disturbance. There's something seriously wrong here. There's only one thing for it. We're going to the hospital. We're going to go to the hospital. We're going to take poorly child to the hospital, and we're going to have to wait there for some considerable time. Then we'll eventually get back home. And we've made it. We're here. <laughs> well done, if that was you. I don't know. Um, oh, that, is, that is tough. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm really tired too. I stayed up really late last night. And uh, I watched one film, and then I decided I was going to watch another one. Um, and then you know, the, the clock was ticking on, and before I knew it, it was four o'clock in the morning. 
And so I've only had a couple of hours sleep. Life is hard, isn't it? Now, hopefully we can see there's a, there's a distinction there in the kind of suffering and hardship that those two people are going through. One, you think, well, yeah, you, you've not brought that upon yourself. You, you had to respond to a very real situation, a very real crisis that wasn't of your own doing. It wasn't of your own making. That's what happened. It unfolded. You had no prior warning that it was about to take place, but then you meet it and you've got to deal with it. Crisis, hardship, suffering. The other type, well, there's some suffering involved, but in a sense, it's that which has been brought upon, upon oneself. There's an element in which it might be self-inflicted, in which case we just need to put our hands up and say, that wasn't very wise, was it? Uh, I am in some way experiencing the consequences of my slightly um, silly decisions. Uh, and that sometimes happens. This is, that's, what, that's not happening for this church. This church in Smyrna is experiencing the type of pressure and the type of, of difficulty, the type of challenge and hardship which is not of their own making, which we are going to see as we run through. So we can experience pressures like that. Pressures that are not our own fault. The, the pressures that go along with living in a fallen world, in a fallen and a fragile world, where things that can happen, we're not in control of them, suffering hits. Persecution comes. There's hostility at work. You, standing up for Jesus, owning up to your faith in a public realm, brings ridicule or brings some kind of uh, hostility. There can be pressure as well in a, in a work situation where you're, you're just working amongst people whose values are kind of glued to this world. And so it's, there's elements of un, injustice. There are things that this, this shouldn't be. This wouldn't be a pattern in God's kingdom, but it's the pattern of this world. And so we, we can be kind of embroiled in the ways of working that other people uh, operate by. And there's kind of pressure that comes because well, there's, there's injustice there. Uh, there's, there's kind of heavy pressure to put in any number of extra hours as if family and life and church and rest don't matter. Well, that's pressure. Persecution. And also there can be things to do with, with sickness, illness, and disease that don't come because we've made reckless decisions. They come because we live in a fragile world. And pressure comes. Hardship. Difficulty. And so we, we see right at the outset of Jesus' prophetic message to this church in Smyrna, what they need first of all, and we saw this again, with, uh, we'll see this with every church, what's, what's the first importance is that this church has a fresh revelation of Jesus. This church sees Jesus. That's where true and genuine comfort comes from in this world. And the world, the world lacks comfort, real comfort, because it doesn't see Jesus. It doesn't know Jesus. And so Jesus knows this church needs to have relationship with me. And I, I need to reveal something specific about myself, about kind of who I am and what I'm like to this church that then they find comfort. We see that and then in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. We had that encouragement earlier on that God is in control of time. There's something there that uh, is suggesting that here. God is the first and the last. And we see uh, in a few places in scripture um, that kind of title being used of God. For example, uh, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 43, uh, 44, um, 
which hopefully I'll also be able to find. Uh, 44 and verse 6. This is what the Lord said. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no other. Again, I think we see it a little later on in um, chapter 20, uh, 48, uh, if I'm not mistaken. 48 and verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. There's that sense of God is reminding his people, I'm God. I'm the only God. And I'm the first and the last. I, when, when the story of history began and there was just God, God in all his power was not restricted at all when he decided to create the universe. So he decided to lay the foundations of the world. And he, he spoke, and creation that didn't exist obeyed his voice and came into existence. Um, there was no one there to say, oh no, you can't do it that way. Um, you have to realize that, well, well, no, you can't make light, actually. I'm sorry. Um, there's, there's a ban on it here. Um, there, there are these policies and legislation and so on. You, you can't do that, God. There was no one around to say, God, you can't do that. God was completely free to do exactly what he wanted, and he was completely powerful to achieve all that he wanted. No restriction whatsoever. He's the first. And he's the last as well. But when history comes to a close, there's going to be no challenger to God. There's going to be no one to stand up and to say, I'm sorry, oh, no, 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 no. God, you're, you're not in control, actually. Sorry, pardon? Um, me and the, we're, we're celebrating the end of time and my ultimate victory over all things. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I, I still need to challenge you. Uh, I, I, I've still got something. Um, you haven't quite... You haven't quite defeated everything yet. No, there's, there's, there's going to be none of that. There's going to be no competition. As, as Jesus kind of presents the bride, there's, there's going to be no spot. There's going to be no blemish. There's going to be complete victory for Jesus, the, the first and the last, the God who's in complete control of everything, in control right at the beginning of time, in control at the very end of time, and in control everywhere in between. Time, that's in his hands. Everything is in his hands. Now that can raise the question, well, what's the proof? What's the proof that God is in control of all things now? Because I can think of situations in my life, and perhaps I can think of situations in other people's lives, in this very church, that would appear to suggest that he's not He's not in control, really, is he? He's not in control of that situation. And sometimes people, we can try and come up with doctrine that sounds right. It kind of sounds comforting. God's, can, God's kind of in control of all the big major events. Or God's in control of certain milestones, certain landmarks in history. But of course he's created free will. And therefore anything can happen. And he doesn't know what, what might happen. There are certain things that he's aware of, and, and ultimately, yes, everything will work out in accordance to his plans and purposes. But the details all in the between, I will note, he can't, possibly be un, he can't possibly be understood to take care of all of that as well. Well, does my life fall within the gaps then? Is God really in control? There's a, 
You might, we might regard it slightly sentimental, but there's a well-known Christian poem uh, called Footprints in the Sand. And uh, I won't need to tell many of you of it, but for those perhaps for whom you haven't yet had the pleasure of reading it, in a nutshell, someone has a dream, and they look back, and they see that their life um, uh, has been kind of a, a walk uh, along the shore. And so they can see their own footprints all the way through life, through every kind of high, through every low, their footprints are in the sand. And they can see also there's another set of footprints, and that's God's footprints. God's footprints in, in these situations all through life. Boom, 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 boom. But in looking back, this person can see, well, there are certain areas of the walk where I can see only one set of footprints. Now, why is that? And uh, logically, uh, there are three possibilities. Uh, the, the first possibility is that well, there are certain times of crisis uh, when God uh, disappeared. And so his footprints weren't there. You couldn't see his footprints in the sand uh, because he wasn't there. Um, through the highs, he's with you. Yes, he's going great, isn't it? And then stuff goes wrong, and he's not around. He disappears. What's going on? I don't understand this. That's one possibility. That's obviously not the way the poem ends. Uh, otherwise, I don't suppose so many of us would know it. Um, uh, the second possibility um, is, is how it then unfolds. Is, is God saying to his child, well, actually, when you were going through those dark valley places, those crisis experiences, uh, those were the times when I was carrying you. Those were the times. I, I've always been in control. I've always been with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're mine. I wouldn't desert you in your time of crisis. And in fact, at that very time, the fact that you were sustained on the journey is because I was holding you. And we know that's true. Or at least we know it in our heads, don't we? And maybe there are times when we can look back and we can think, oh, crumbs, well, yeah, God has deserted me. It just, that's just how it seems. Um, maybe some of us wouldn't expect that. There's a, third, there's a third option. And again, I hope this doesn't ruin the poem for you, but someone mischievously pointed out to me once that logically speaking, you know, God at the end comes to this dream. There's a conversation between God and the person. Where, where were you? What was going on uh, when there's just one set of footprints in the sand? And God says, well, that was when we were hopping. Um, what? <laughs> it's me and God. So God was with me all the time. Thank goodness. But we were both kind of just trying our best to get along. You know, we walk along the beach and there's a bit of a you know, thorn or messy seaweed and Jesus is struggling as well as me, actually. So, you know, we're like, oh, crumbs, this is hard work, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think we'll make it. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, now, we might not think, God deserted me in my hour of deepest need. But we might think, kind of, God's just stumbling along with me. God's with me, wonderful, comforting, but he's not quite in control. So what's the proof? What's the proof? That God isn't kind of hopping through history. Uh, what's the evidence that, uh, that actually it's absolutely certain, it's absolutely guaranteed that God is in control of the very beginning, of the very end, and of everything in between? What is the evidence of that? Well, Jesus describes himself as the first and the last, and then who died and came to life again. There is the glorious proof in history, which we see in the Word of God, that attests to the fact that God 
is always, always in control. We've, we've already seen in, in chapter 1, where it's described uh, in verse 5. Um, well, reading from uh, verse 4, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We have it again in verse 18, where Jesus says to John, I'm the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, God is ultimately and awesomely and wonderfully over all things in control because we see in the life of Jesus he experienced the very worst of pressure he experienced the very worst of persecution he experienced the very worst of people opposing him and being betrayed and being deserted and being arrested and being tried and being mocked and being beaten and being kind of violently opposed being nailed to the cross being insulted and ridiculed But in all of those things, God wasn't hopping. It wasn't like it was in doubt. It wasn't like two equal powers were trying to battle it out. The power of God and the power of darkness. And it was not quite sure who's who's going to win this this massive battle. And it's finally in the balance. And, uh, And thank goodness by the skin of his wonderful teeth, few, God won because he rose Jesus from the grave. That was a close one. Don't do that again. Um, Was it like that? Well, well, no, because all that happened, everything, even the exceptionally dark times, was still mysteriously being orchestrated by a heavenly God who is bringing everything about in order to fulfill his purpose that Jesus would die so that we would be forgiven and he would be raised to life so that we could have new life in control of it all. In control of absolutely everything. That's the the real evidence that God is in control. Now God's control, as for Jesus, didn't didn't mean that Jesus was immune from suffering. It didn't mean like some artwork sometimes when Jesus is portrayed as this kind of guy with um, uh, kind of hairsprayed, kind of straight hair. The only man in the Middle East at that time who had straight blonde hair was there and he kind of looks like he's never done a hard day's work in his life and, and he kind of floats above the ground and he, he floats through life um, you know, not, nothing can hurt him uh, there were, uh, yeah just, well that's not, that's, not, that's not a picture of the Jesus we know walked on the earth um, he suffered persecution he, he suffered all of those things, he was afflicted he was a man of sorrows um, He was tempted, but never giving into it. So he wasn't immune from suffering. Um, But over everything, God wonderfully and impeccably in control. Here's why the church in Smyrna needed to know this. And this is part of the section, if you like, which I've understood in my mind at least as the kind of the well done verse. Here's the verse where Jesus says, you know, I know. I know what's going on and well done. He's saying, I, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's the church. They are afflicted. They are under pressure. They're also poor. Question is, well, 
actually, what on earth was actually going on in Smyrna? Smyrna was a wealthy seaport, and in it, at least in its very recent history at this point, um, it had been very faithful uh, to Rome and to the Caesar. Uh, in fact, they uh, were allied to Roman authority uh, long before other areas of the eastern Mediterranean were kind of um, enveloped into the empire. They were like the first. They were kind of like happy to be there. And so they quite enjoyed worshipping Caesar. Uh, and so that was a massive part of life. Uh, so the, the cult of emperor worship played a big role in society. Uh, therefore also in business. So if someone wanted to do well in life, they wanted to kind of uh, get promoted or whatever and uh, acquire wealth for themselves, uh, they would have to fit in with that. They'd have to go along to various temples and rituals and so on and burn incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord and so on. So if, if anybody wanted to get on well in Smyrna, if anyone wanted an easy life in this city, uh, that's what they would have to do. Now Jews in Smyrna, or anywhere for that matter, uh, they, craftily or carefully, they were exempt from the same pressure uh, to worship the emperor, as though he were a god. Um, but any new religion was completely frowned upon, it was unacceptable, and they would attempt to massively stamp on it. So what's going on here? They're, they're afflicted, they're poor. There's, there's a slander of those who say they are Jews, or in other words, there's, there's a slander of those who say they are the God of Israel, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, what was going on? Well, the Jews in that town, who had decided to reject the message of Jesus, were then very happy to point out, no, this little group over here, this little sect of new believers who are following Jesus, they're not Jewish. In fact, they're, they're nothing to do with us. So whereas initially they would have been thought as like an offshoot of Judaism, the Jews are saying, oh, no, 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 no. They, they do not worship the God of Israel. They don't worship our God. They're not God's people. You can do with them as you like because they are nothing to do with us. And so therefore there'd be any number of repercussions that were coming their way. Uh, they could be banned from trades, banned from doing business, therefore poor. Uh, they could be exiled like John. He's writing from the island of Patmos. Um, in severity things could step up though because they could be imprisoned and ultimately they could be killed. Um, and that's what did indeed happen to, to some of them. So Jesus is saying, I know. I know what's going on in your city. I know what's going on in your life. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know you are under pressure. This is not the pressure that's self-inflicted. This is tough. I know. He also brings heaven's perspective, though. On the earth, they're afflicted and they're poor. They're being slandered and persecuted. But what's Jesus' perspective? I can see that in actual fact, you're rich. You have heavenly riches. You have experienced all of this, all that Rome, all that Smyrna can throw at you, and you've stayed true. You've not drifted off one side or another. And so he's saying, he's saying, well done. They get a well done. 
So Jesus reveals himself. He's then kind of speaking into the situation they face in Smyrna, and he's saying, well done. Now it moves on from there, not to give a warning, but jumping ahead to say, well, there's still a way ahead. Jesus is wanting to mark out the path for them and say, this is what you face, these are the challenges you face. They're not of your own making, as it were. Um, and here's, my, here's my, my comforting, compassionate, specific words of instruction for you. Here, here are the words with which I, I want to equip you. I want to encourage you. Church, I want to help you. I want to help you stay on the track that you so impressively are, are already on. And so he says in verse, in verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here are, here are the, ten, here's the tender words of Jesus to this church. Do not, do not be afraid. If you want to sum up today's message, it would be, God's in control, don't be afraid, be faithful. God is in control, don't be afraid, stay faithful. That, the beginning of verse 10 can have an odd ring to it, let's be honest. Do not be afraid. We're, we're going to briefly look at four reasons why this, this text shows us not to be afraid. Um, the first one, however, can sound strange. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Does that sound ominous to anybody else? Would you like to hear that? Would you find that comforting and encouraging? Yes, Lord, I receive your words of encouragement today. I am about to suffer. Hallelujah. It's like a doctor saying, um, this is going to hurt, uh, but just try and relax. Uh, what? <laughs> you just told me it's going to hurt. That's the very reason why I want to tense up if you're about to inject me with something. Oh, you'll feel a sharp pain for a little while. Oh, great, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Or, and I, I have to, I'm sure I use maybe about the same five illustrations in every message. So, um, so I've probably used one before, but it's also like, uh, you know, someone, someone saying, oh, don't be afraid of dogs, because dogs can smell your fear. I don't think they can, I just think they're good at observing body language. But anyway, um, that doesn't help me. I, I don't feel helped by that. Well, this is, despite my unhelpful illustrations, this is of significant comfort. Reason number one, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Number one, Jesus knows what lies ahead. Jesus is the first and the last in charge of all history. He knows what we have experienced. He knows what's going on right now. He knows what's lying around the corner. Think for a moment, how comforting would it be for Jesus to say, don't be afraid, I haven't got a clue. Don't be afraid. I hope you're all right. Don't be afraid, don't wait for me. I've got to get this thorn out of my foot. But after that, I'll catch up. <laughs> no, that, that's not comforting. This is tremendously comforting. Because Jesus does know Kind of very famous psalm, Psalm 139, encourages us that there's, there's nowhere 
there's no place we could go to and escape the presence and, and the knowledge of God, as it were. We'll, we'll never be able to get outside of his orbit. But it also says in, in verse 16 of Psalm 139, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows every day of our lives. He knows what tomorrow involves. He's already kind of gone ahead of us, as it were. He's like like the good shepherd. Rather than the shepherd who kind of herds the sheep from a distance, he's the shepherd who leads by going first and leads the uh, the sheep by his voice. He, He goes ahead of his people. You're before me and behind me. You hem me in. That's what the psalmist says. He, he hems us in. And so he can prepare us for what lies ahead, helping us to hold on even when crisis does hit. Now sometimes, um, I, certain situations, I, I'm one of those people who are just like, yes, I crave the personal prophetic word where someone says, you there with no hair and the red shirt, I've got a word from God for you and you're just going to be tremendously successful at everything. Yes, that's me. They picked me out. They knew that I was going to be wearing my red shirt again. Um, (laughs) um, And they can see the future and they can see, yes, tremendously. I take hold of that in the name of Jesus. I'm going to be a superhero for him. And... um, Those are the kind of words we can like. Sometimes the most helpful words are, in fact, I've seen ahead, and that situation there, that's going to be tricky. But I'm going to meet you there, I'm going to sustain you there, and don't lose heart, because there's a day coming after that, and I'm going to guide you through that time of testing. Think, oh, I didn't... Thanks, but I didn't really want to hear that. But actually, you can bet your bottom pound or dollar, that when I am there, having heard that kind of word, when I am there and I'm experiencing stuff and it's not quite going as swimmingly well as I'd hoped, God has already spoken to me. God has already addressed it. God's already said, yeah, it's going to be tough. But I'm going to be there and I'm going to guide you through. So number one, Jesus knows what lies ahead. Number two, um, even Satan's activity serves God's purposes. Well, how do we see that? We, we see that where it says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there because that goes on to the next reason. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. This is what the part of the suffering is going to involve. Imprisonment. Again, it doesn't sound massively encouraging. And, and Satan, this is the very first time we hear mention of his name. Uh, Satan, the synagogue of Satan, and then obviously talking about the devil who put some of you in prison. Um, this is the first time in the book of Revelation he crops up and it, it opens our eyes a little bit to a, a significant theme that runs through the entire book of Revelation and that's spiritual conflict, that's spiritual warfare. That's the reality that we are, without being able to see it, uh, living in, uh, as part of a spiritual realm. Uh, we can't see everything that takes place, um, but there are spiritual beings uh, who please God and desire to please God and carry out his purposes, and there are spiritual beings um, that don't. And, um, and Satan is the, the chief of those, if you like. It's the first time he's mentioned. He is a real uh, spiritual personality. He's not just kind of, um, he's not kind of evil personified. Oh, when, when something bad happens, oh yeah, I guess I've got to deal with my demons or whatever. No, it's not kind of some 
flippant way of just talking about stuff that isn't nice. It's talking about a real spiritual person, not an equal with God who's battling for supremacy, a created being like angels, but one who chose to rebel against God, and so he hates God, and therefore he hates you, uh, and he hates us. He hates the church, he hates Jesus, and so he wants to do everything he can to oppose Jesus. Uh, That's why he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. That's why he was very happy when he had the opportunity to enter into Judas so that he could ensure that Jesus was betrayed. That's why he was, he was very happy to, uh, as he would have thought, to kind of infiltrate uh, kind of religious leaders of the day to ensure uh, that they would crucify uh, the Savior. That's what he's trying to do. Um, it's got to be massively frustrating for him then that actually his efforts have just served to make Jesus even more glorious uh, because he died and he rose again. And in so doing, he defeated um, death, he defeated sin, and he defeated the devil. And so his own, his own work swung back the other way. And, uh, and so we know Jesus is victorious. And yet, on the earth right now, there's still real conflict involved. And so he's involved here, putting people in prison. That activity is attributed to the devil. Now, he uses a whole variety of different means to try and squash God's people and squash their faith and apply pressure. And sometimes he comes, and Paul describes him in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4. You can turn there briefly. Uh, At this rate, you'll probably get there faster than I will. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, um, describes, kind of almost in passing, um, it is not surprising then if his servants um, masquerade as servants of righteousness. Um, The devil then is, sorry, I jumped ahead of verse, verse 14, no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, there'll be certain times where Satan operates in this kind of mode, um, look how appealing um, Mark, this, this take on things is. And he'll, he'll try and get into, into the life of a church and just, well, again, get them off, off centre. Get them to drift away. Um, maybe by uh, tempting them with na- nice-sounding false teaching. Oh, just get them off track a bit. Just get them away from the true gospel. That'll work. That'll kind of distract them for a bit. Uh, or maybe you'll try something else. And, uh, again, this is what seems to have been happening in Ephesus. I'm just going to get God's people um, to start having a go at each other. And I, the devil might, would, would, would say, I'm, I'm very happy um, if I can produce as much unforgiveness as possible in the life of the church. That really G's him up. He can kind of establish a real nasty bitter roots that's going to defile lots of people. yes unforgiveness, another one of his little schemes just to sow difficulty into the life of of God's people, squash their faith, squash their witness, turn down their light. Yeah, the world will not be very impressed with them now because they're just like the world, having a go. And maybe if he doesn't try that, he might try uh, other methods. And and we'll go and look at some churches where perhaps it's applied. I'm going to get them off track. Uh, because I am going to make um, uh, lust 
and sexual immorality um, and adultery. I'm going to make that as appealing as possible. Kind of like that fruit in the garden. Don't you see how good it is? Oh, take a bite. Oh, no, that's had really, really bad consequences. Um, so Satan will, will try and, and, and do that. And then generally, he just wants to bring slander and accusations. So he'll tell us that God doesn't love us. He'll, he'll try to establish any amount of evidence to get us to believe God doesn't love you. Well, maybe he had tried all those things in Smyrna. But he still can't squash this church. And every test, every, these different methods at different times, trying to seduce them, trying to tempt them, one way or another, hasn't worked. That's why Jesus says, again, well done. You see, with the devil, he's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-wise. It's kind of trial and error. I'll try this. Oh, it didn't seem to work. I guess I'll have to try something else. Oh, that did work. I'll try that some more. And maybe when they're really low, I'll go back to that again. Um, well, with Smyrna, I think those things hadn't worked. And so now he kind of, 1 Peter 5 verse 8 describes him as prowling round like a lion looking for someone to devour. Satan can operate in kind of a masquerade mode. Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm, I look very light, don't I? I can make things seem quite appealing for Christians. Sometimes he'll resort to prowling kind of lion mode, uh, looking for someone to devour. And that seems to have been uh, happening here. Jesus says in John 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies as well. That's what he's just looking to bring against this church. But even though that's what he's doing, even his activity serves God's purposes. Satan is trying to distract Destroy, kill, steal, ruin. What it achieves is to test you. To test you. And so this church has become more glorious because they've stood the test and they've been coming through the other side. Uh, Yesterday um, was a core group leaders day. And uh, core group leaders we, uh, had the, uh, the privilege of a day spent with And he was spending some time with us, bringing some very helpful teaching. He's also sharing his testimony. And it's stuff that you don't want to hear. It's just stuff you don't want to consider what it was like. He was describing the worst six years of his life. Uh, during which time he has experienced... Uh, for very many months, uh, what are called cluster headaches, um, which is like there's a headache, there's a migraine, and cluster headaches are near the ceiling, if that makes sense. In, in, uh, repeated each day, intense headaches where he was describing how when the pain hits and he didn't know what to do with himself, it was like his head was trying to give birth to his brain through his eye. And often he would black out in the pain. And there were occasions where, an occasion where a, a, a doctor saw him and ef- effectively congratulated him uh, for not committing suicide. Because uh, often people who've experienced um, uh, cluster headaches, either deliberately or unintentionally, uh, will end up ending their own lives because they're just looking for some way of escaping the pain. He was describing that. 
Wonderfully, he was also describing how God brought him through and what God has been doing. He's also describing a situation we were praying for as a church as well. That his, his wife was falsely accused in the most ludicrous and exaggerated of ways uh, in her workplace. It resulted in a court case. It resulted in criminal charges and being heard before the judge. And we're praying. There's so many people just saying this is ludicrous. There's, there's no evidence really here. But somehow, these bogus witness statements from colleagues have made, it way, made their way through to magistrates. And so there's a court case. The court case was, was thrown out. So no, this is a woman of impeccable character. But that's what they were living with for, for six years. You think that's, that's totally... I mean, let's not mince our words. That's totally horrific. There's nothing pleasant about that. There's nothing enjoyable about that. That's, that's just downright hard. That is pressure. Ugh. Spiritual conflict. Planting a church, you know, building a church which is planting other churches into, an, into a nation that had significant revival many generations ago, but now is just there's, there's darkness. And so they're, they're, they're there to see the kingdom extended. And the enemy's coming at them. He really is. Sometimes we talk about spiritual conflict and a spiritual attack. as though It's a real, really kind of unusual event. Well, no, this is the stuff that happens. This is what happens in the life of the church. Maybe not always to the same kind of extreme proportions as some people might experience, but there's a real battle going on. It's not unusual if we go through a spiritual conflict of one sort or another. Something strange actually isn't happening. It's more strange if we're not, in one way or another, experiencing these kind of pressures at different times. But as we were hearing, he was sharing what God was doing, what God had said, what God had shown him. The enemy had meant something massively for harm. He's trying to kill, try and destroy his family. What it has actually produced, I think, is a more glorious situation where many of us have been in the benefit of just hearing his insights into prayer, hearing his insights and his encouragements and his exhortations to pursue our relationship with God. The result of it is, I want to do that. But it's come through horrific circumstances. Yes, it's real and it's painful and that mustn't be kind of diluted and just downgraded. It's not, ah, uh, yeah, just we're, we're into triumph here. No, that's real stuff. So Satan was testing in order to steal, to kill and destroy. But Jesus is actually strengthening his people through these tests. With more kind of glorious jewels, if you like, showing as a result. Suffering, thirdly, is also limited. Persecution for 10 days. Sometimes people wonder, is that 10 days a literal 10 days? Uh, well, it's unlikely. Um, in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends have a test for 10 days uh, where they say, we're not going to eat the, the royal food from the king's table. And that's not just kind of signing a piece of paper about your dietary requir- requirements. Um, this was kind of quite significant. They were, they were resisting, kind of just throwing their lot in entirely with this Babylonian king and saying, yeah, to eat food from that table is to pledge allegiance to that God, really. And we're not prepared to do that. 
And so they went through a 10-day test. And actually, they came out the other side of that test in better condition than then when they went, went into it. Uh, it was a literal 10-day period, and it's likely then that John is kind of referring back. He's maybe borrowing that symbol, this 10-day period, to say, yes, it's intense, it's tough, it's unenjoyable, it's unpleasant, it's nasty, but it's limited. It's for a time. You know, for, in God's church, for Jesus himself, intense but limited times of suffering and hardship. Followed by eternal, everlasting, glorious, blissful kingdom. For Satan, what looks like temporary, limited success, exerting pressure, stealing and killing and destroying. That's followed by eternal, horrific punishment and suffering for him. In God's kingdom, because we are with Jesus, we can expect to experience intense but limited, severe times of testing. Followed by the most amazing glory when every tear is wiped away. As we were singing so many songs today, when I stand in that place, free at last, meeting face to face, that glorious day, eternity to enjoy God, eternity to get one revelation after another of just how good God is, in some way, helps us to navigate our way through 10 days here and 10 days there. Suffering is limited. Fourthly, and we'll wrap up soon, I promise. Um, Faithful perseverance, even to the point of death, is rewarded by the crown of life. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. He's also saying, be faithful. Even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. It's suggested that it's possible, listening to this message when it was first read out, was a guy called Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp came, became Bishop of Smyrna um, in AD 115. And later on in the middle of that century, um, he was um, martyred at the end of a wave of uh, local persecution. And uh, he had been sought out. He did not seek martyrdom, but he didn't shy away from it either. And Roman officials tried to persuade him to say, Caesar is Lord, to offer him incense and to revile Jesus. And he continually refused. And then uh, uttered the, uh, the words, 86 years I have been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they cannot persuade him. It's a man who'd, who'd heard this and he stayed faithful. I wonder if in his mind was, I wonder what this crown of life is going to be. I wonder what this crown of life is going to be. James promises similarly in 1 
uh, in James 1 and verse 12, I think it says, Blessed is he who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This kind of wraps up with these wonderful promises. This, this way ahead. Jesus revealed himself. Jesus commended them. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He says, this is the way ahead. Don't be afraid. I'm in control. And he says, be faithful because I'm in control. It wraps up with these wonderful promises. You're going to receive a crown of life. I think there's a both and interpretation here. On the one hand, this is talking about eternity to come. A crown of life that we will know as eternal life. We are crowned with eternal life, forever with God, face to face, experiencing his blessings. There may also be a sense in which this is talking about specific uh, rewards. And I'd be very happy if when get to glory, they have like a specific crown which says you were faithful through cluster headaches and you were faithful through hostility in the workplace and an unjust trial. I would be very happy with that. I would be very happy. I think there's an element of justice. You've, 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 you've experienced that in the world, but now you're going to experience what I have to give a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's what Satan will experience, a second death. It's the, later on in Revelations it referred to, the, the kind of uh, the lake of fire. This is the um, eternal separation from God. The first death is physical death. Well, we'll experience that um, unless Christ comes again soon. Uh, Polycarp experienced it because he was martyred. The first death. But the second death, well, that won't touch you. You'll go into great blessing. The, the eternal death, the eternal suffering, eternal damnation won't come anywhere near you. Actually, that, there's, there's just no threat. For you, in Christ, it's got absolutely no sting whatsoever. You'll be in me. You'll be with me for eternity. That is the wonderful promise uh, that wraps up this message. The ultimate joy of knowing that we will be with God resurrected like Jesus. Jesus has gone before us. He died. He rose again. We will die. We will rise again to be with him. Let's pray together.